0: Luke chapter 24, Luke chapter 24, the third gospel record in the New Testament, Luke chapter 24. There's a British pastor by the name of W.E. Sangster who, as he aged, began to lose his voice and function of his muscles throughout his body. He had a disease that caused progressive failure. As he recognized the end was drawing nearer to him, he threw himself into writing and to praying and trying to be as useful as he could be. Eventually, his voice failed completely. His legs got to the spot where they no longer were useful to walk or move. And on Easter morning, just a few weeks before he passed away, he took a pen and shakily wrote a letter to his daughter. And in that letter, he said, it is terrible to wake up on Easter morning and have no voice with which to shout, he is risen. But it would be still more terrible to have a voice and not want to shout. We have the awesome privilege of having the chance to worship our Lord today, and to say he is risen, he is risen indeed. Every resurrection Sunday morning, I leave from our gathering and I want to climb on every housetop in Newton and declare to the masses, Christ arose. It should pain our souls that the majority of the world goes on about its business on a day like today with no to little thought of the Son of God in the flesh suffering and dying for their sins laying in the grave for three days and then rising victoriously over sin and death and hell. The best news the world has ever heard has come from a graveyard containing containing an empty tomb. If Christ is raised, then all who have believed are forever saved from their sins and will be forever alive in and with Him. If Jesus Christ be not raised from the grave, then we are of all people the most to be pitied, and the most miserable as we stake our eternities on a myth. The resurrection of Jesus is no myth, however, and you know that. That's why I think you're here. You believe this with your whole heart. You know it to be true. But I want to take you to Luke's gospel to prove to you again the reality of the resurrection. Maybe this morning you gather with us and you have some some doubts or questions in your mind. Maybe you're visiting with us and you're not yet a believer in Jesus we're thrilled that you're here we're so glad you get the the chance this morning to hear the good news of Jesus dying for sinners and suffering in your place and then rising again victoriously on the third day it's a bold claim to say that Jesus Christ died under the weight of sin and then rose on the third day that's a that's an extravagant claim That's a big statement, and it requires extravagant proof. So if we're going to stake our eternities on this reality of a resurrected Christ, we better be able to prove it. And indeed, we can from Scripture itself. We could go to any of the Gospels. We go this morning to Luke's Gospel. Luke was a trained physician, meaning he was a stickler for the details. He saw things that other people didn't see because he was trained that way. And he was also an avid historian. He, he did a ton of research to put his book together, interviewing hundreds of eyewitnesses of the resurrected Lord. And he writes down those details in this book that we hold in our hands this morning. He comes to Luke 24, to the resurrection account, and he gives us overwhelming evidence that Jesus truly and really rose from the grave. The section in Luke 24 that I want to focus our attention on for a few minutes is Jesus coming to his eleven disciples at the end of Resurrection Sunday. it's the end of the day they have spent the day in fear and worry, and here Jesus appears in their room. Earlier in the chapter, Luke told us about what happened earlier in the day that the women had gotten up early to go and prepare the body of Jesus for the full burial with the spices that they had prepared. But when they arrived, they saw the stone rolled away from in front of the tomb and the body of Jesus was gone and two angels immediately appeared to them and told them, he's not here, he's risen, just as he said. Go and tell his disciples that he has risen. And so they rushed to tell the disciples. And as they do, Luke tells us in verse 11 of chapter 24 that the disciples thought these were idle tales, that they were making stuff up, that they could not believe the good news. Peter and John, however, of the 11, got up and ran to the tomb entering in, they saw the grave clothes and no body. They saw the face cloth that would have wrapped the face of the dead body of Jesus, wrapped and put in its, neatly in its place. The other gospel records tell us of Jesus appearing to, to Mary Magdalene first, and then to the other women. And then uh, we're told in verse 34 of our chapter, and again in 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus appeared to Peter at some point on Resurrection Sunday. But Luke only tells us about his appearing to two other disciples. And that's to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, a town just to the north of Jerusalem. As he appears to those two disciples, you, by the way, should take time later today to read through that text. Read that account of Jesus appearing to the disciples on the road to Emmaus and let your heart be stirred with how Christ condescended to their level and explained to them the scriptures, how he opened the scriptures to them, proving to them that he, Jesus, was the fulfillment of everything said in the law and in the prophets and in the psalms, the writings of the Old Testament. He then, the text says, opened their eyes so that they could see and understand that the one explaining this to them was Jesus himself. And as soon as they recognized him, he was gone from their presence, Luke says. Well, that guaranteed by Jesus' wisdom that those two disciples in Emmaus would get up and go to Jerusalem, and that's exactly what they did. They rushed back to Jerusalem, to the upper room, to talk to the disciples of Jesus, to say, not only has he appeared to the women, not only did he appear to Peter, but listen, we just talked to him, and he explained to us the scriptures, and that's what's happening as we come to our text in Luke 24. I'm going to start reading in verse 35 and I'll read down through verse 49. Then they, the they there are the two disciples from Emmaus. Then they told what happened on the road, how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, "Peace to you." But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Pray with me, would you? Father in heaven, thank you for this opportunity to open your word and to hear from your spirit, your truth about your resurrected Son, we pray that you would meet with us in these moments and teach us your truth. Convince us again of the reality of a resurrected Christ and show us how it is that this should impact every aspect of our life from this moment forward. We pray especially for those in the room who don't yet know the forgiveness of their sins through Jesus. Father, we pray that today would be the day of their salvation that you through the preaching of the word would bring to them faith and that by the hearing of the word they would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Lord, would you do this for your glory and for the building of your church in Jesus' name, amen. Can you imagine yourself in these moments in this closed room on that first resurrection Sunday? John tells us in his gospel that they were so afraid of the Jews that they were locked in a room. Their master and teacher had been brutally murdered on Friday in a public spectacle of injustice. These men assumed they were next on the hit list, and that was a right assumption, that their names were the next ones that would be brought out and crucified publicly. They had been hearing rumors all day of an empty tomb. They had had some come in and out saying, Jesus is alive. The women had caused quite a stir early in the morning. Peter and John had gone and seen it for themselves. But now here they are at the end of the day, still unsure, still disbelieving, still not sure what to make of it all. They can't put the pieces of the puzzle together in a way that makes sense to them. And they sit there wallowing in their confusion. Now two more disciples, near the end of the day, in the dark of the evening, two more disciples come running into the room and pronounce to them, they have just seen the resurrected Christ. Matthew tells us they still did not believe. They still did not believe, even when the two from Emmaus says, we just talked to him. In fact, it seems that they would not believe unless Jesus himself came and made the case. And indeed, he does. Really, this is an astounding display of these disciples' frail humanity. And we're just like them, if we're honest. For the last three years, they had lived with and seen Jesus in ways no one else had. No one, not the women, not the two disciples from Emmaus, no one more than these 11 had more proof of Jesus' deity No one had heard more often or more clearly Jesus' own claims, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die and I'm going to be in the grave and then I'm going to raise on the third day. No one had heard that more. No one had seen more supernatural displays of the power of this man they called Jesus. Even seeing him raise several people from the dead. No one had more reason to believe without seeing than these men. And yet, here they sit in fearful doubt. Enter Jesus. What a glorious expression of his humble condescension to us. To enter into their room filled with doubt, to show compassion and mercy to them, and to prove to them that he is indeed the resurrected one i want to walk you through the text this morning quickly and show you how jesus gives them seven proofs of his resurrection he, he proves to them in seven seven different ways in this text that he did indeed rise from the dead and i say to you who better to make the case than jesus himself angels are great that'd be amazing other disciples that'd be cool but how much better to have jesus standing before you to say listen Here I am, I rose from the dead. He makes the case first by coming in peace. Did you notice that as he approached them in verse 36, how he speaks to them? The room's a hotbed of of speculation and doubt. Jesus enters the room in miraculous fashion. He doesn't knock on the door and wait for them to let him in. He enters the room miraculously and is just there in the middle of them. And he says to them, Peace to you. Now, you might read that in your Western mind and think he's just giving a a Jewish greeting, like he's saying, hi, how you doing? That's not what he's doing. He is expressing to them something that he alone could express to them in these moments. He's coming to them as the one who had just finished the work on the cross to pay for their sins and purchase their peace. He's coming to them as the the one who has guaranteed that they will forever have peace with God. And he's coming to men who did not deserve peace with God. Just three days before, these men had seen Jesus arrested and taken away into a whole trial of injustice, and they ran away to save their own skin. One of them even trailing behind, staying somewhat close but not too close was pressed three different times. You know him too, don't you? And three times he said, I do not know the man. I do not know the man. Are you kidding me? I do not know the man. It's to this group of men that Jesus comes and appears. Notice he doesn't come in with condemnation and judgment. He doesn't come with words of accusation and of his own unbelief at their unbelief. How could you not believe? He doesn't say that. He doesn't even rebuke or correct them in the moment. Rather, he brings them what they need most in this moment, and that is the peace of God. And it is a peace that only Jesus can bring. It's a peace that he alone purchased with the price of his own shed blood. As Romans 8, 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. As Colossians 2 says, we have peace with God through the shedding of the blood of Jesus on the cross. And here Jesus stands face to face with these men who had just betrayed him, and he says to them, peace to you. It is, in fact, the resurrection of Jesus from the grave, which is the guarantee of our peace with God. So how is it that we know that We have peace with God. And I ask you specifically, individually, you, how do you know that you have peace with God? That is the most significant question upon any human heart in any generation and in any place. Because your greatest problem is that you are at war with God. That you have declared yourself independent from your maker that you know better than him and you've gone your own way and that is your greatest problem. And the only hope for you is that somehow peace can be made between you and your maker. Otherwise, you're going to spend eternity apart from him, absent of peace. In a place the Bible clearly says is a place of torment and gnashing of teeth. A terrible place called the eternal lake of fire. So how do you have peace with God and not end up there? And how do you know you have peace with God? In other words, how can you have your sins forgiven? That is the question which presses upon every soul in this room, nay, in this world. And how do you know that you can stand clear of your sin and declared righteous before the God of heaven? How do we know that Jesus' death on the cross of Calvary was sufficient to pay for the sins of sinners like you and me? How do we know that He drank the the cup of God's wrath down to its last drop, that there is nothing left for those who are in Christ? How do we know that, that those who have placed their faith in Christ's finished work will indeed have eternal life? Well, we know, first of all, by Jesus' own words on the cross, when he, in his final words, said to Telestai, it is finished, or it is paid in full, it's done. That was the son's validation of his own work. But full and free forgiveness and the finished work of Christ has been validated by the resurrection of Christ on Sunday morning by the Father. This is the Father saying, yes, it is paid in full. Yes, sinners can be forgiven. Yes, they can have eternal life. Yes, they can overcome death and hell in my son. You can have peace with God because Jesus is no longer dead. And yet, as he stands in their midst, the disciples were still frightened in Luke 24. They're frightened because they think they see a ghost. They don't know how to make sense of the moment. Luke's gospel begins with Zechariah in Luke 1 being terrified in the temple because he saw a vision in which an angel of the Lord told him, your wife will get pregnant and have a baby, and he will be the forerunner to the Messiah. And he was terrified at the sight. Now Luke's gospel ends with the disciples with Jesus present and terrified at the presence of the Messiah. Which, by the way, you must know, soundly answers the ridiculous theory, which has tried to always throw shade on the resurrection. Maybe you've heard this before, that the, the disciples of Christ were so anticipating his resurrection that when Sunday morning came, they, they so wanted it to happen that they saw visions of their own imagination, that they kind of became a self-fulfilling prophecy, and they, they thought they saw the Lord, and they thought they heard from the Lord, and they thought they handled the Lord. Well, people who make that claim have obviously not actually read the Gospels because the disciples were sitting in cowardice fear in a locked room convinced he wasn't risen from the grave. Though they heard it from multiple sources, people they trusted before for all kinds of other things, now when it came to the resurrection of Jesus, which they had been told about before, they said, no, it couldn't have happened. Indeed, Christ now stands before them and convinces them that he has risen from the grave. He brings them peace and convinces them he has risen. He also presents his body to them in verses 39 to 40. He makes the case by presenting his body. See the the gentle condescension of our Lord here. He knows they are flesh and bone. He knows that they've seen and experienced life with him in a physical world. They've touched him and been around him before in his three years of ministry, and, and now he rises from the grave, and he knows they need to experience that again. He specifically says to them, see that it is I myself. In other words, that it's really and truly me. This is not some spiritual mirage. This is not some divine magic trick in which God is, is kind of making them believe, but it's not actually Jesus. So he wants them to know, oh, this is really me in the flesh. Notice how he points them to his hand and his feet. Makes you think of the interaction between Jesus and doubting Thomas in John 20, doesn't it? When Thomas says, I won't believe unless I can see, can Feel and see the scars in his hands and in his side. then Jesus appears in the room and says, here, Thomas, see the scars in my hands and in my side. Put your hand there. And then Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Jesus does that preemptively here in Luke 24. Thomas is not in the room, John tells us later. But the other 10 are, and Jesus preemptively says, here, touch the scars of my wounds. His body is a resurrected and a glorified body, and there's a ton of mystery to what that looks like, what the glorified body will be like. We know for Jesus it means that he could show up in a room unannounced and not walking through the door or the wall. He just shows up, and he can leave at a moment's notice without you knowing where he went. But we also know that he was recognizable to his disciples, that his resurrected body maintained the scars from his cross work. And so here Jesus points them to those eternal evidences of his finished work on Calvary's cross. Those wounds have now been healed through resurrection power. They're not still bleeding. They bled and he suffered and he died and it was finished. And the wounds are now covered over and are now scars on the body of our Lord. And they forever mark our Savior's feet and his hands and his side so that we forever know that he did really and truly die. Have you ever thought about the moment you'll see the physical, real, glorified Jesus in glory? One of the things you're going to see in that moment are the scars of his death for you. And you already know this, but you will really know it then that he died in your place. That those nails really went through his wrists. That this was not a fairy tale or some spiritual myth made up by people who wanted to help you through life. That no, the Son of God actually entered into your time and space reality and had a body just like yours and gave that body as a sacrifice for you on the cross. And your faith for all eternity will glory in a Savior marked with these scars of his finished work. He also proves that his body was physical to them in verses 41 to 43. He says, go ahead, see my hands and my feet, put your hands on me and feel that these are real flesh and bones. But then he says, more than that, give me something to eat. Luke says they were disbelieving for joy. In other words, they were they were so caught up with joy that this might be true that they still couldn't believe it was true. They're so shocked in the moment that, is this really happening? Is this reality right now? And so he says, let me show you that it's reality. Do you have something for me to eat? And they give him a piece of broiled fish and he takes the broiled fish in their presence and, and eats it and swallows it down, proving to them that he has a physical body he's not a ghost or an apparition or a figment of their imagination they're not seeing a vision they're not in some higher spiritual plane this is real and true and he's physically raised from the grave and physically eats in their presence then verse 44 he points them to scripture he proves his case by pointing them to scripture so he convinced them physically this is really me touch my wounds and feel that it's me See me eat fish and know that it's me. Now he's going to prove it to them spiritually, theologically, biblically. He's going to point them to the truth of the word. He's going to say, listen, what you're seeing physically is in line with everything you know spiritually. He's going to start putting pieces of the puzzle together for them to show them that what they're experiencing in the moment fits perfectly with all that God has ever said. He shows them from the law and the prophets and the Psalms, the entirety of the Old Testament. How everything that spoke in those books of a coming Savior was fulfilled in Him. This is the second time in a matter of minutes that Jesus has done this with His disciples. He did this in Emmaus. He opened the Scriptures to them and He walked them through the Old Testament, taking them to places like Genesis 3 and Genesis 22 and Job 19, and Psalm 22, and Psalm 110, and Isaiah 53, and on, and on, and on. And he takes them to these texts, whether he opened a scroll to them or not, he quotes the word to them, texts they knew. And now he helps them understand them in a way which makes sense of what they're seeing in front of their very faces. Now with the disciples in the room that's locked to others, he does the exact same, he points them to the scriptures as proof of his resurrection. He basically says to them, what you're seeing now is always the plan from before the foundation of the world. You missed it up until now, but here I am to tell you, this is what the word has always said. And you see what he's doing here? He's making the bedrock of their faith the revealed word of God. There are preachers today who seem to want to skirt around the Bible and point you to the experience even of the resurrection of Jesus and say silly things like, you don't need the Bible, you just need the resurrected Jesus for your faith. That, that To claim that your faith is built on the Bible is, is actually counterintuitive to witnessing to the world that doesn't believe the Bible. Just point to a resurrected Lord. Well, it's silly on multiple levels. It's silly because you only know of a resurrected Lord because of the Bible. How are you going to prove the resurrection without the scriptures? But beyond that, it's silly because it's not what Jesus does. He is literally the resurrected Lord in the room with disciples who are doubting whether or not he's the savior of the world. And he doesn't say, listen, just believe because I rose from the grave. End of the matter. Exclamation point on the sentence. I'll see you tomorrow. Class begins at eight. Show up. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, here I am, touch me, know it's me. And he says, now listen, this is what the Bible has said from beginning to end. From Genesis all the way through the rest of the Old Testament, this is what the scriptures has always taught you. And he starts to put the pieces of the puzzle together and make sense of it all for them. He points them to the word and then he opens their minds to understand. Verses 45 to 47, he points them to Scripture, but then he goes on, and Luke says he opens their minds to understand the Scriptures. There's another proof of the, of the resurrected Lord. Only the supernatural, alive Son of God could do this with his disciples. Only one who could overcome physical death could in this moment with his disciples overcome spiritual death. Ignorance and spiritual death of understanding. The word for opened here in Luke's gospel is used in Mark 7 to speak of the opening of the deaf man's ears, to let him hear a supernatural work. In Acts 7, it's, used to describe the opening of heaven as Stephen is about to be martyred and he gave his testimony of the glories of Christ and he looks up to heaven and the heavens are opened and he sees Christ seated at the right hand of God. Same word. It's used in verse 31 in our text to speak of of Jesus opening the eyes of the two disciples in Emmaus earlier in the text It it said that his eyes were shielded, were covered, he couldn't see. They couldn't see and recognize him but then Jesus opened their eyes so they could see and perceive him. Luke will use the same word in the book of Acts in Acts 16 to speak of the Lord opening the, the heart of Lydia in Philippi so that she can believe and respond to the gospel proclaimed by Paul. You see, this is a, a supernatural, divine action. He just told them in verse 44 that this is what the scripture says. Everything you're seeing is in line with that, but now he's, he opens their minds to grasp it that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Notice what else he says to them as he opens their minds to the scripture. He says that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Where are these disciples when he says that to them? They're in Jerusalem. Where did our Lord die? just outside of Jerusalem. Who killed him? The chief priests and leaders of the religious sect in Jerusalem had all the power. Why did they kill him? Acts 2 says because they were sinfully rebellious and they hated him. They rejected all that he said that was true about him. So these are sinful men in power in this city. And Jesus says, because you've seen me and I'm opening the scriptures to you, you are going to go and proclaim to those sinners who nailed me to a cross and killed me that there is forgiveness of sins and repentance and peace available. And you're going to start in Jerusalem. It's an astounding, astounding statement. And that would only happen if they themselves had their hearts and minds opened to the truth of the gospel. Jesus is helping them put the pieces of the puzzle together in their minds. He's he's helping them to grasp how they all fit the present reality of the resurrected Jesus. And he's showing them that from beginning to end, it all comes together in him. And friend, this can only happen if God in his kindness helps you to understand. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14, the text says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Apart from God's grace upon you, giving you spiritual discernment, you cannot understand or make sense of the message of Jesus and of the gospel. That's what Christ here overcomes in these men. He's he's giving them that discernment, helping them to understand and to believe. And this I say already, I say again, is proof of his resurrection. Only Jesus could do that. Only the resurrected Lord could make that case. And then he makes the case to them further by commissioning them to service. Verse 48 is the smallest of the great commission statements in the Gospels. Matthew is two to four verses, depending on where you slice it. Mark's is a couple of verses. John is a couple of verses in a couple of different places. Luke is one verse, verse 48, in which Jesus says to them, you are witnesses of these things. Things. You are witnesses of these things. You will go and tell others about the truth of these things. We know from Matthew's gospel and John's gospel. We know from Luke's second book, the book of Acts, that Jesus said more than this. That he said, You'll be witnesses for me in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And really, if you think about that, that's a, a bold command. Right? Here's 11 men who in this moment sit fearfully in a locked, closed room showing all the signs of of spiritual wimpiness you could imagine. And it's to them, Jesus says, you are my witnesses of these things to the then known world. You'll go everywhere and tell all people this glorious good news. You say, well, that's a statement of authority. It's a statement of command. Absolutely. It's a commission, after all. He's commissioning them to service. You're going to go do this. But it's not just a, a statement of authority, is it? It's a statement not just built on Jesus is God in the flesh. It is built on that, for sure. But it's a statement built on the conviction that Jesus rose from the grave, that he is indeed the Son of God who came out of the tomb. Because if they hadn't seen that, they knew before that Jesus was the Son of God. and He told them before the resurrection they were going to go be witnesses, it would have had much less power upon their heart. But now He says, you will go be my witnesses because He Himself has raised from the grave. In this moment, they sit fearfully behind locked doors As you turn the page to the book of Acts, you see these men go forth from this room. And they go out in a powerful way, proclaiming the goodness of the gospel all over the world. The book of Acts says they turned the world upside down. Well, what happened to them? What changed them from the fear of Luke 24 to the courage of Acts 4? Two things, they saw the resurrected Jesus. And then the spirit of that resurrected Jesus came upon them in Acts 2, empowered them to be the witnesses that God had called them to be. But they were convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. And if you are convinced that this is true, and to whatever level in the moment you're convinced this is true, you also will be a bold witness for our Lord. It is in those moments of of fear of man that you have your eyes upon others or upon yourself or upon the shame they might heap upon you that you stay quiet or resist from saying, listen, your only hope is Christ alone. It is when you are full of the view and the vision of Jesus himself, crucified, buried, and risen again, that you are bold to say, no matter the consequence. You are in need of a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus, our Lord. In the 1800s, two Scottish Presbyterian missionaries headed to the South Pacific to the New Hebrides Islands. Filled still with savages and cannibals, these two missionaries landed on the shore of one of those islands and. Before the boat that dropped them off could even get out of harbor, those two men had been killed and eaten by the cannibals. This word obviously came back to Scotland and everyone in the churches was afraid of what might happen to whoever would go next. John G. Patton was impressed upon by the Lord that he must go. Well-meaning people within the church tried to dissuade him, and one elderly man in particular warned him, if you go, you will be eaten by cannibals. To which Patton replied, I confess to you, sir, that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. What was it that compelled John Patton and his wife who died within months of them arriving on the island? Remarried and his second wife went with him back to this horrific, difficult spot where he served faithfully for decades and almost the entire island was converted to Christ. What compelled our brother to take his life into his own hands, to go into what others thought was sure death, What compelled him was a high vision of the resurrected Christ. For what can man do to you, beloved? Mock you? Beat you? Kill you? All the sooner to gain glory with our Lord. All the sooner to know the resurrection power of Christ. So beloved, I trust you understand that this conviction about the resurrected Jesus is key to your sacrificial and faithful service to Christ. You don't need to go to the New Hebrides to walk in resurrection power and resurrection conviction. God has called you to the life before you and to the obedience he has laid in your path, the people he's entrusted to relationships with you, and he expects you To walk forward, not in your own strength, not convinced of your own ability, not peddling your own truth, but walking in the power, the truth, and the grace of a risen and resurrected Christ. Jesus also convinces them of his resurrection by promising his spirit in verse 49. He says, I'll depart, I'm gonna leave, and I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. We've talked a lot about this in the Gospel of John. This is Luke's version of which John spends a lot more time on. And Jesus says, I'm departing from you. I'm returning to the Father, but I will send my spirit to empower you to be my witnesses. Wait in Jerusalem until my spirit comes and then go forward in that power and turn the world upside down with the good news of a risen Lord. Friend, a dead Jesus still in his tomb, cannot make nor fulfill that promise. But because he is alive, because the grave could not hold him, because death could contain him no longer, he stands in their presence and says to them, listen, I'm sending my living spirit upon you. And he will empower you to bring life to a dead world. These are eternally transforming realities for the disciples, for every disciple. In every age, I wonder this morning, friend, are you doubting in your unbelief? Having heard truly and clearly the message of the gospel of Christ, do you wallow in disbelief like the disciples in this room? I point you to this text and I say to you, Jesus comes to you and says, Peace to you, offering to you eternal peace with your eternal God through the perfect work of his eternal son? Will you by faith receive this gift of salvation? Will you look upon Jesus today and live for all of eternity? I wonder for you, brother or sister, as already a disciple, do you identify with the fear of these men in this room? The world pressing in Threats to your faith around every corner. Unknown realities lurking outside the four walls of this room. Can you see yourself and these men shaking in doubts and fears? I say to you, see our Lord coming to you and saying to you, peace to you. See that it is I myself. I have risen from the grave. And I explain to you, Jesus says, the The scriptures now go and tell. I wonder, is your life beloved in a state of apathy or spiritual confusion? One in which you're not sure you care all that much to serve and honor and know Jesus. I say to you, Jesus comes from Luke 24 in his resurrection power and proves to you this is no myth. This is no divine magic trick. This is a life-altering reality for all who are in Christ. And so as Paul says in Romans 6, you are crucified with Christ, you are buried with Christ, and you are raised with Christ. Therefore, reckon it to be so. And say no to the flesh and say yes to God and obedience to Him as you walk by grace through faith. May God help us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the power displayed through the resurrection of Jesus our Lord. Thank you for the confidence we have in our faith, knowing, knowing that it is finished. We pray again for those among us who do not yet know this peace with you through your son. Lord, I pray that your spirit would convict them of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And that you, through the preaching of your word, would bring them to belief in Christ alone to save them. Lord, I pray for the brother and sister among us who is most struggling in doubts or fears or apathy about following you. Lord, I beg of you to convince them yet again of the reality of a resurrected Jesus and the peace and the commission given because of him. Father, would you do your work through your word for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.